Azure for that ministry in music. This morning we are taking a hiatus from 2 Timothy as we are celebrating communion, and so I wanted to have a message that would prepare our hearts for the participation in communion. My thought to you this morning is that we should not be surprised by suffering. 1 Peter 4.12 states, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you. The Christian is actually called to suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 reads, for to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. This morning we are going to consider the fact that Jesus is the supreme example of suffering. And the scripture tells us that we are to follow his example. Christians sometimes suffer innocently. 1 Peter 2.20 states, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is better to suffer innocently than when we suffer because we have done something bad. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As I said, Jesus is the supreme example of suffering. He certainly is the supreme example of suffering for doing good as opposed to doing evil. Our text this morning is actually 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there, 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As I said, Christ is a supreme example of one who suffered for doing good. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. I said our text is verse 17. It's actually verse 18. If you look at 1 Peter 3.18 it reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I am going to draw six principles concerning suffering from 1 Peter 3.18. Well, this morning we're going to have communion, so we don't want to be here all day, so I'm going to limit myself to about four minutes on each one of these six principles. Uh, so we can't look at it in depth, but we want to look at the supreme example of Jesus as he models for us how to suffer. So the first thing we note this morning is that Christ is the supreme example of suffering innocently. Christ is the supreme example of suffering innocently. If you look at verse 18, it reads, For Christ, and now this simple word also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered. That's putting it mildly. But here there is a comparison. 
The comparison with our suffering and Christ's suffering. And in every level, our suffering is minimal in comparison to the kind of suffering that Jesus underwent. And the first thing we notice is that the suffering that he underwent was an innocent suffering. It tells us in verse 18 that he suffered for sins. For sins. There are two different prepositions in the Greek for the word for in verse 18 as opposed to the English. If you look at verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Then it reads, The righteous for the unrighteous. In the Greek, the word for is two different prepositions. The first one, that he suffered for sins, is literally on account of or in respect to sins. He suffered due to sinfulness, not his own, but the sinfulness of others. And uh, we could look at how he suffered for our sins, which is the next point. Here the, the idea is much broader, and that is that all his suffering was due to sinfulness. It was not at all, according to his own guilt, he was innocent in all of his suffering. We could say that Jesus suffered sinfully, meaning that he was treated in a shameful and sinful manner. The motivation for the suffering that he endured at the hands of others was sinful. They treated him in a sinful manner. So too, we are to submit to suffering even when it comes as a result of the sinful conduct of others. I'm going to be jumping all over 1 Peter this morning to illustrate uh, these truths as they are revealed throughout the entirety of the book. If you look with me at 1 Peter, starting at verse chapter 2, starting at verse 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Here the example is of having a wicked master. The, the, there were slaves in the New Testament era, and some slave owners were gracious. Some slave owners were wicked. And here it says that you are to submit to even the wicked slave owners. And if you are doing that, you are going to be suffering unjustly. You are going to be suffering innocently. You are going to be suffering in a way in which you do not deserve to suffer. Jesus is the supreme example of someone who suffered in a way that he did not deserve to suffer. And we are to follow in that mindset. We are to be willing to suffer even when we don't deserve to suffer. Uh, he is the supreme example because he was sinless. We are never totally innocent. We are never totally in the right. 
Uh, we are not perfect, but he was. But even though we are not totally in the right, still it's possible for us to suffer unjustly. It's still possible for people to accuse us of things that we did not do. And we are to follow Christ's example in being willing to suffer innocently. Second, Christ is the supreme example of suffering vicariously. <coughs> that is, suffering in the place of another. If you look at 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, and now this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. The idea of the word for, in this particular instance, it's a different preposition, it means in place of or instead of. Christ died in place of or instead of the unrighteous. Christ suffered in our place. Another word for this that is often used is the substitutionary view of the, atone, of the atonement. The idea that Jesus died in our place. He was without sin. <clears throat> we had sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the scripture says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There was a wage, there was a, a debt that was owed of death because of our sinfulness. And so he died in our place. He died on the cross so that we would not have to die a death of separation from God. He was treated unrighteous so that we could be treated as righteous. So he willingly died in our place, taking upon himself our sin. Now we're to follow that example. We are not capable, however, of actually bearing someone else's sin. Uh, we cannot pay the penalty that's due to, owed to God for the sin of another individual. We may wish that we could, but, but we can't. We can't die in the place of our children. We can't supply the righteousness in the place of a loved one. While we are not able to accomplish what Jesus accomplished, we are still able, however, to seek to relieve the suffering due to the consequences of sins by taking on that suffering ourselves. The scripture says the way of the transgressor is hard. There are a lot of consequences that come upon individuals because of their sinful actions. Uh, sometimes uh, people run into financial difficulties because of their own greed, uh, because of their own lust, their own desires, uh, their own unfaithfulness, their own sinful practices has resulted in them being in great financial difficulty. You can't pay the consequences of their sin, but you can help to try to alleviate some of those financial difficulties that have come into their life. 
There are a lot of consequences. As I said, the scripture says, the way of a transgressor is hard. And we can take on a spirit, we can take on an attitude that mimics the example of Christ in trying to alleviate some of the sufferings that people are going through as a result of their sin. And if we are to do that, we have to enter into that suffering. We have to be willing to take upon ourselves some of that pain that they have, uh, should be experiencing, but we want to alleviate it, and so we take it upon ourselves. Even as Jesus took upon himself the consequences of our sin, which was death on the cross. Thirdly, Christ is the supreme example of suffering redemptively. For suffering redemptively. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And now these words, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. The purpose in which, for which Jesus died was so that we would be brought into a right relationship with God the Father. To bring us to God literally means to have access to God. He made it possible that we were able to approach unto God. There are many different figures of which there are examples in the scripture of how we are, we are brought to God. Uh, we become part of God's family. We become the children of God, adopted children, as it were. Uh, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So we have this opportunity to have a relationship with God. In uh, 1 Peter, in uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he brought us back under the leadership and direction of God. That now our lives are lived under God's authority, under God's purpose, fulfilling the will of God. He died so that we would be brought into a right relationship with God. Now again, we cannot guarantee that people are going to enter into a right relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do that will actually secure a person's salvation. There's nothing that we can do that is going to be efficacious, effectual, meaning that in and of itself has the power to bring about salvation in the heart and life of another individual. But having said that, we can live our lives with a degree of intentionality. We can live our lives with a sense of purpose. We can make decisions with the clear intent that our desire is to see people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can make decisions about how we are going to conduct ourselves so that the gospel is going to go forward and they're going to have an opportunity to hear it. 
We can make decisions about sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus, about speaking up. We can talk about activities that we can engage in, uh, manners of which we can uh, demonstrate. There are some interesting examples in 1 Peter about this aspect of following Christ's example redemptively. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 1. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, starts the ESV. The word likewise means in the same manner. And in the same manner goes back to the manner of Christ's suffering. The manner of Christ's intentionality. The manner of Christ's redemptive work. As Christ entered into this redemptive work, in the same manner, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It says, now, wives, you may have an unbelieving husband. You may be married to a wretch. Uh, you be, may be in a hard and difficult situation. But even though you're in that hard and difficult situation, you can choose to subject yourself to that husband so that even without the word, even without haranguing them day in and day out, even without witnessing to them constantly, they can be won not by your word but by your behavior, by your conduct, that they are so impressed with your graciousness, so impressed with your kindness, that they are convicted of their own behavior. They're convicted of their own attitudes. They understand that their behavior has been reprehensible when they look at this dear wife and says, they don't deserve the way that I have been treating them. In that same manner, you can suffer redemptively. You can suffer with the intent that this will be used of God to bring him to a place of salvation. That's one example that Peter gives us of how we can suffer redemptively. The second example comes down in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise. Likewise, in the same manner. In the same manner that the wife submits to the husband, in the same manner that Christ suffers redemptively, in the same manner, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. Here the idea is that this dear wife may know the Lord is their Savior, or it may mean, and I think it's probably this, that they are destined to come to know the Lord as their Savior, and you are praying for them. You are praying for their salvation. You are desiring that they would walk with God. Well, how can you live your life so that your prayers are not hindered, so that these prayers are going to be answered? Answer, to live with them in an understanding way to living with them in keeping with what the Word of God teaches us. Showing honor to the wife 
as the weaker vessel. Uh, people have done amazing things with this verse. Uh, all this is saying is that you are treating her with white gloves. You are treating her with great respect. You are, you are treating her as you would a very costly vessel. You don't want to hurt her. <laughs> you don't want to harm her. You don't, want to, you don't want to do anything. It stands in stark contrast to the first example of this wretch that this godly woman is married to. You don't want to be that. You want to put her on a pedestal. You want to raise her up and you are going to be praying and you are living your life in such a way that she comes to faith. Well, that might mean some suffering. That might mean that you have to forgo some of your rights, some of your privileges. That means you might have to put up with some grief, with some heartache. That means that you have to be willing, in some sense, to suffer. And then it could be expanded. Okay, Parents suffering so that their children would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can think about ways in which godly parents are going to choose to make decisions that they somehow suffer financially or emotionally, that they are willing to take some grief, they're willing to take some heartache, they're willing to put up with some guff in order that their children saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think about our neighbors. And maybe our neighbors are not the best neighbors in the world. And maybe they do not always conduct themselves the way that they should. And so we can stand up and demand our rights, or we can choose to suffer with the intent that we'll just maybe they will come to know the Lord. And I can alter my conduct. I can live the example of the Lord Jesus so that they would come to faith. It's in that sense that we can suffer redemptively, and we are called to do so. The fourth example is the supreme example of suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now these words, being put to death in the flesh. Being put to death in the flesh. This is an unusual statement in light of the emphasis of the New Testament. The emphasis of the New Testament when it comes to the death of the Lord Jesus is repeatedly that Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. That he died willingly. Uh, Jesus said, I laid down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received of my Father. Certainly no one could put Jesus to death had Jesus chosen not to die. He was a voluntary uh, actor in this whole process of being put to death. But the emphasis here is that he indeed was put to death. It's emphasizing the role 
of the government officials, of Pilate, and of the Jewish leaders, and of the Roman army who put Jesus to death. One can expect to receive justice from our governing officials. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. First Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the supreme role of government. Government is intended to be the instrument of God's justice. They are to reward good and they are to punish evil. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's talking about what to do when government is unjust, when government does not reward good, but actually punishes good and rewards evil rather than punishing evil. It's talking about when government enters into the role of persecution. When government starts passing laws that do not promote our Christian faith, but rather seek to uh, subject our, hum our Christian faith. What do we do at times such as that? That's what I'm referring to as suffering unjustly. It's very close to the aspect of suffering innocently. But suffering innocently has to do with informal ways of suffering. Suffering for things that we haven't done informally. Okay? People paying us back, if you will, when in actuality we didn't do anything to deserve it. Like a boss who may mistreat us, which is the example in the book of 1 Peter. But when it comes to government, whose role is to reward good and to punish evil, when it fails to do that, as it, did in the, the, as it did in the example of Jesus. Jesus was unjustly condemned. Everyone knew that Jesus was innocent. When he stood trial before the Jewish high priest, they actually paid people to lie about what Jesus had said and done. They paid to have false witnesses testify against Jesus. They knew that they were pronouncing an unjust sentence against Jesus. The crowd knew when Pilate said to the crowd, who do you want to be delivered? Barnabas, Barabbas, or Jesus? And they cried, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. And they preferred to have a murderer set free 
and have Jesus crucified. Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus? They said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate himself said on three different occasions, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in him. And yet, Pilate condemns Jesus to death. In John chapter 19, Pilate said to him, that's Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate says, Jesus, don't you know I have power over your life and over your death? Jesus said, you don't have any power except what God allows you to have. But Jesus was put to death. Unjustly. Unjustly. So too, sometimes we will not receive justice. Not only will we suffer innocently, but sometimes we won't even receive justice. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3, 13. The expectation. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Who's going to harm you for doing good? Who's going to find fault for, for your doing good? The expectation is you're going to be rewarded for doing good. But unfortunately, it's not always the case. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you should suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, that you do it with gentleness and respect. Be willing to suffer unjustly. Fifth, Christ is the supreme example of suffering triumphantly. Back to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and now this statement, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.22, only four verses away. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to them. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit. Of course, he also eventually was made alive in the flesh four days later. But here the idea is that when he died, his spirit went to be in the presence of God. So too, we will triumph over suffering. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now listen to these words. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced 
by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in this. Your brothers throughout the world are going through this kind of suffering. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's talking about our great salvation. It's talking about when you suffer even to the point of death. He who has called you to his eternal glory, he will cause you to ultimately stand in the end. He will cause you to triumph over sin and death. Sixthly, Christ is a supreme example of suffering completely. Christ is the supreme example of suffering completely. Verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, and now this statement, once for sins. Many of the translations say once for all. You can translate it either way. Once for sins or once and for all for sins. I like once and for all for it gives the emphasis that it's once for all time. Once for all time. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sufferings came to an end. Jesus is not suffering today. Jesus is not suffering in heaven. Jesus suffered once and for all when he died on the cross. At that moment, when he breathed his last breath, his sufferings were over. They were completed. He paid the price. We don't have a crucifix hanging here this morning. We have an empty cross. And the empty cross is to symbolize the fact that the work of Jesus Christ is completed, it's done, finished, the sufferings are over. He's now in an exalted place in the heavenlies with his heavenly Father. We're going to take communion this morning. We do not believe this morning that when we take of the cup that it turns into the blood of Christ. And we do not believe that when we take the bread that it turns into the body of Christ. And the reason we do not believe that is because the sufferings are over. We're not committing a new sacrifice today. We're not offering up Jesus new and afresh today. We are memorializing, we are remembering what Jesus did once and for all. His sufferings have ended. And we too will have suffered completely in this life. When we die, we are going to be entered into the very presence of God. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to return, and when he does, we're going to be bodily raised from the dead. But Hebrews 9.27 says this, Just as it is appointed to man to die once, 
And after that comes the judgment. Okay? Mankind dies, you only die once. You don't die repeatedly. You die once, and then comes the judgment. The time of either entering into a Christless eternity or entering into the relationship with God forever and ever. Listen to the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Suffering is over. It's done. When we have given up our last breath, we will never, ever suffer again. We rejoice in the salvation that has been granted to us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through his own death and resurrection. We can't suffer in the same, way, same extent that Jesus suffered. But as we partake of communion this morning, we can be reminded that we can model our lives after the suffering of the Lord Jesus. The salvation that we enjoy is due solely to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He bore all the suffering associated with our sins. He brought us to God by faith in Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This morning we celebrate this salvation that we enjoy. We are grateful that one day we will know no more suffering. But in this life we do suffer. And we should be willing to suffer. Following the example of the Lord Jesus. May we suffer, yes, innocently. May be willing to suffer redemptively. May we be willing to suffer vicariously in the place of others. May we be willing to take on their sufferings so they suffer less. May we be willing to suffer so that people would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of this is minute in relationship to the reality of the supreme example of suffering, and that is the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope this morning that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, I invite you at this very moment, simply bow your head and ask God to forgive you your sins based on what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And if you do trust in the Lord alone for your salvation, we invite you to partake in communion this morning. Men, if you would uh, gather together and come forward.